On August 12, 1898, the United States formally annexed Hawaii. The next day, American troops marched into Manila to seize it from the Spanish. In the decades to come, as Filipino laborers immigrated to Hawaii, the history of these two archipelagos, one a territory, the other a colony, would intersect in surprising and sometimes bloody ways. Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we head to Hawaii, where we dig up the secret history of a forgotten massacre. This is Season 4, Episode 2, What Happened at Hana Pepe. In the sugar plantations that dotted Hawaii, the original wave of Chinese, Japanese, and Korean immigration slowed to a crawl, and so recruiters began to target people from the brand-new U.S. colony of the Philippines. Filipinos became one of the most numerous immigrant groups in Hawaii. From 1916 to 1928, more than 66,000 Filipinos, most of them from Ilocos and the Visayas Islands, found work at the territory's sugar fields and mills. According to the 1926 Monthly Labor Review, At present, it is estimated that 70% of the agricultural laborers in Hawaii are Filipinos, and the immigration of other races has practically ceased. In this island paradise, the Filipinos did back-breaking labor, 10 to 12-hour days with only four days off in a month, for $1 a day, with most of them assigned to the hardest jobs, cutting sugarcane in the hot fields. They slept in poorly maintained housing and they often weren't paid on time. Filipinos began asking for higher wages, improved working conditions, and pay equal to the other immigrant groups in the islands for the same amount of work. Among the Filipino labor organizers was Pedro Manlapit. He was an outlier among the Pinoy migrants. At six feet tall, he towered over his countrymen. He came from Lipa, Batangas, and spoke Tagalog in a sea of Ilocano and Bisaya, and in a labor force where seven out of ten Filipinos couldn't read or write, he had a grade school education. He arrived in the sugar fields in 1910, but left to become a janitor, a salesman, a billiards hall owner, a newspaper publisher, and eventually a lawyer. Throughout his colorful career, he would never forget his roots in the plantations and tirelessly advocated for their rights, even if this would sometimes land him in jail. In 1919, he even helped organize the first ever United Plantation Workers Strike among two nationalities, the Japanese and the Filipinos. By 1923, Manlapit was calling for a $2 a day minimum wage, a work week of just 40 hours, overtime pay, and an end to plantation abuses. The Governor General of the Philippines sent a Filipino inspector from the islands to investigate the situation. This commissioner sided firmly with the sugar planters and laid the blame on gambling habits, labor unions, turnover rates, and con men. In other words, the Filipinos were asking for higher salaries, better houses, 
and maybe more than one day off a week were the problem, not management. One month after the inspector's report went public, an infuriated Manlapit called on Filipino workers to go on strike. Filipinos across Hawaii's plantations began walking out of their jobs. If you grew up in the 90s or the early 2000s, then you probably just hummed along to the song I just played. I'm old enough to have watched the Disney animated movie Lilo and Stitch inside a movie theater, and so I was surprised to learn that its setting was inspired by the town that's at the center of this episode. The town of Hanapepe is a riverside community in the south side of the island of Kauai. In 1924, a few hundred Filipino strikers took refuge there. The company had kicked them out of their plantation housing, of course. So they had no strike fund and they had no idea how long they would need to strike or what would need to happen to achieve their goals. Of Kauai's 5,576 laborers, only 575 of them went on strike, so work didn't stop in the fields and mills. And as their protests dragged on, the strikers began to realize that no one else, not even fellow Filipinos, wanted to join the picket lines. By the Hanapepe River, 150 strikers, mostly Visayans, rented out a Japanese language school to stay in. To stay alive, they caught fish on the river or relied on the kindness of residents like a Japanese baker who would give them food. They would sit inside the schoolhouse, frustrated, hungry, and uncertain for the next one and a half months. A historian told Honolulu Magazine, The strikers are really frustrated by this time because they're not shutting down anything. They don't have a lot to eat, they don't have a great deal to do, and the sugar industry is going right on producing sugar, and it doesn't look like anybody else is joining them. Hi, sorry to interrupt. This is Leo, creator of the Colonial Department. If you're liking the episode so far, I'd really appreciate it if you click the subscribe or follow button for this podcast on the platform of your choice. Leave us a rating and review too. All of that will really go a long way in helping support this pod. And now, let's get back to some more Philippine history. On September 8, 1924, two Filipinos from the Makaweli plantation cycled into Hanapepe, looking for shoes to buy. The shoes cost $4, a pretty significant amount of money for a laborer who made only $26 a month. After buying their footwear, they got on their bikes and headed back to their plantation. But on the way, they were ambushed by the strikers who kidnapped them, took them inside the schoolhouse, and, according to one Filipino eyewitness, beat them up and held them hostage. No one is exactly sure why these two plantation workers were captured by the strikers. Was there some regional or ethnic animosity involved? The kidnapped pair were Ilocanos, while the laborers on strike were all Visayans. Or maybe the Ilocanos were known strike breakers or spies or scabs or skunks or stool pigeons. That could also have been possible. What we know for sure was that the two kidnapped workers were still employees at the plantations, 
And perhaps for the protesters who were tired and hungry and frustrated, that was already enough to mark them as enemies. Friends of the Ilocanos called for the police. A deputy sheriff went to the schoolhouse and demanded that the strikers let their captives go. The Ilocanos were brought out and told the policemen, improbably, that they wanted to be there. The sheriff went to the county attorney and asked for a warrant for the two Ilocanos. The police evidently thought that the best way to rescue the Ilocanos was to arrest them. The next day, September 9, the deputy sheriff returned to the schoolhouse ready for trouble. With him were 40 men. Many of them were so-called special police hired by the sugar planters to break up the strikes. These deputies carried guns with them. The posse of lawmen parked down the road a little ways from the schoolhouse and took positions on a hill overlooking the school. Four sheriffs headed inside the school and showed the arrest warrant. The strikers let the captives go. But as the lawmen hurriedly led the Ilocanos back to the police cars, a crowd of strikers followed, streaming outside the school grounds to taunt them. They must have seen the 37 men with guns, and so they had with them their knives and clubs from their plantation work. Reports claimed that some of the strikers also carried firearms, though in an oral history done decades later, the Filipino strikers denied this. According to the official police report, someone from the strikers fired the first shot. But the Honolulu Times reported that it was the special policemen who shot first. Decades after the massacre, all a Filipino eyewitness remembers is this. When the police were chased by the strikers, that's when the shooting started. They just started killing the Filipinos. The deputies stationed up the little hill, which still exists today, trained their rifles onto the crowd of strikers and began firing. Some of the Filipinos fought back. Three policemen were shot dead. A fatal knifing took down another. Three more policemen were wounded by blades. But most of the Filipinos fled, taking refuge in a banana patch. Many were shot from behind by the snipers on the hill. For half an hour, the policemen took shots at anyone they found running. When it was finished, 16 strikers were dead, and so were four policemen. The police moved into the schoolhouse, arresting over a hundred men. Then, even Filipino labor leaders who had no ties with the Hanapepe strikers were arrested on the other side of Kauai. The next day, as the National Guard moved into Kauai, the bodies of the slain Filipinos were packed into rough wooden caskets and buried in a mass grave. The sugar planters gave the families of the dead policemen $500 each, while they gave $75 in total to the families of the 16 Filipinos. That's $4.68 per slain striker. The Battle of Hanapepe did not raise much outcry in Hawaii society. The Filipinos were considered the lowest class of immigrants in the islands, and no one bat an eye at the death of 16 of them. The arrested Filipinos were jailed without formal charges and weren't even provided lawyers or interpreters. In the end, 60 Filipinos spent four years or more in prison, 
while many of the others were deported back to the Philippines. In another island, labor leader Pedro Manlapit was tried for conspiracy in an unrelated case and was sent to prison, effectively beheading the Filipino pre-war labor movement in Hawaii. The two captured Ilocanos, meanwhile, quietly returned to work in their plantation. No policemen were charged in the aftermath of the incident. In October 2019, a team of researchers found what appears to be the mass grave where the slain strikers were buried. Inside Hanapepe Filipino Cemetery, historians used ground-penetrating radar to find 12 bodies, many of which had long been covered up by newer graves. The bodies were found a foot away from a mysterious marker that had no names, but only this inscription. Born 1886. Died September 9, 1924. That was the date of the massacre at Hanapepe. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Colonial Department. References used in this episode are written on the show notes, but I'd also like to express my thanks to my main sources. Details differ in the many accounts of the Hanapepe massacre I found online, in the end, I decided to stick to Moon Ki Jung's 2004 article entitled Symbolic and Physical Violence Legitimate State Coercion of Filipino Workers in Pre War Hawaii, which had the most direct quotations. This was supplemented by articles from Positively Filipino Magazine, Honolulu Magazine, and the Garden Island newspaper. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong. Audio from Lilo and Stitch belongs to Disney. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department. <music>